when unity is done properly, it's not 10 plus 10, it's 10 times 10, right? So I know speaking from ICCSD, just being able to worship like this with your worship team, we, I'm so blessed. I know we are so blessed. And, um, and even your liturgical structure, it's just so wonderful to go through that just allow our hearts to go through that process of the Word of God. And of course, those lights. Oh my goodness, we love your lights. <laughs> what a delight it is to have two congregations together. Uh, Pastor Rob and myself, we've been wanting to do this for quite a while now. And uh, coming together, it's not for us um, a token show of unity or a PR stunt for both of us. We both genuinely believe in church diversity expressed in unity as an expression of the gospel. And that is the topic for this morning. Now, we're going to both take one hour each to share this morning's sermon. No, we're kidding. It's 15 minutes each. So it's going to be like a TED Talk for Jesus, right? 15 minutes each. Uh, TED Talk in a sacred space. Now, I will focus on the why of unity and Rob will focus on the how of unity. Now, there is a saying that anyone can smell a rotten egg, but few can lay a better one, okay? I will focus on smelling the rotten egg. He will focus on building the better egg, okay? <laughs> so let me begin. Let me begin by stating the challenge that the church has wrestled with for more than 2,000 years. And what is that challenge? The biggest tension that any church can face is the tension between holiness on the one, one side and unity on the other side. Holiness wants to preserve truth, while unity wants to preserve fellowship. And the tension between these two have produced conflicts and church divisions throughout church history. Now, pastors know that it is easy to have one, holiness, or unity, but not both together. It's a real challenge. It is easy to have, um, for example, it is easy to be holy if you don't care about unity, right? You just split off and do your own thing because you've got people around you who don't share your truth, right? And as many, as many have said, that, that is the story of the churches in the world or the churches in America. So why is this? Why is this? I have four very quick points. Why is this so? The first one is this. Tribalism is natural. Unity requires grace and effort. <laughs> Okay, that's the first point. Tribalism is natural. Unity takes grace and effort. Now let's take a read at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now 1 Corinthians was probably one of the earliest books written even before the Gospels were written. So we already know what's going on in the early church that Paul talks about. So it's in your notes, by the way. So Paul says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. 
Why is he asking for this? Because they are not living in harmony. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow the big one himself, Jesus, right? Has Christ been divided into different factions? Apparently, yes, right? So within the first generation of the church, before the gospels are written, we already see divisions, and those who don't care about unity because they care about holiness, right? So we see those who care for holiness who don't care about unity. So um, what else? We see this continuing on uh, throughout church history. For example, we see the Eastern Orthodox splitting up in the year 1054 from the Roman Catholics, and of course, the Protestants uh, in the year 1517 breaking away from the Catholic Church. Uh, and if uh, the World Christian Encyclopedia by Barrett is to be believed, there are more than 30,000 denominations, Christian denominations right now. In fact, some Christians actually take pride in separation and being defined by their differences compared to their lesser brethren, right? If that is the case, we probably have not heard the prayer of Jesus. It's also in your notes. John chapter 17, verse 21. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I, the Father and the Son, are one. As you and you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Why? Okay, the second part's important. And may they be one in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. So in this verse, there are two things that stand out. The first is that Jesus will not pray for something that is impossible, okay? Why is that? Because unity is one of the effects. In fact, it is one of the effects of the constellation of effects that comes out of the gospel of grace. So for example, if grace is real to you, what comes out of it? You will be peacemakers. For example, there, are, there is a constellation of changes that happens as a result of the gospel. But the second part of the verse is equally true, and that's the second point. What makes the Christian faith credible in the world is unity. What makes the Christian message credible in the world is our unity. In other words, our divisions and lack of unity is the exact opposite of what Jesus is praying for. Now, of course, immediately some Christians might turn around and they would argue, but truth and holiness matters, right? Because Jesus always stood for the truth. Paul always stood for the truth. Right? And truth always divides people. It means that if we have to separate and divide, that is simply the price and the cost of truth. Well, it turns out that if that's the way we are thinking, that is what we would call a shallow holiness. A shallow holiness. Why do we say that? Well, if we look, for example, in Isaiah uh, 44. We don't have time to go through that chapter, but it turns out that when the Spirit of God comes and Jesus shows up, right, holiness leads to the unity of the church as a sign and as a foretaste of God's eventual purpose and plan. 
Furthermore, if you read every single one of Paul's letters, he argues for holiness and unity. Okay, let me give you just one example. Romans chapter 15, verse five to six, after explaining the power of grace in our lives, he says, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for the followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of Paul's letter, every one of them is pushing us towards unity. Now, then comes the next question. Aren't there real differences between Christian groups? Are we supposed to ignore and whitewash substantial differences between Christians, right? Well, you can give a whole long list of differences, right? And so here's the third point. The third point is unity is not uniformity. We don't all have to look alike or believe the exact same non-essential. God delights in a diversity of expressions of his grace. So how do we deal then with real differences since we don't want to whitewash the differences and we are not called to whitewash those differences? For example, for example, Catholics have their different orders. They even have monks, right? Or, or the Eastern Orthodox, or more recently, the Church of the East that we are becoming more aware of in our recent church history. Well, let me provide first a biblical response and then a theological one. Here's the first one. Biblically, Jesus didn't seem too bothered by other people doing ministry outside of his group. Let me read Luke chapter 9 verse 49 in a very familiar passage. John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group slash denomination, right? But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who is not against you is for me. So his disciples demonstrated something that we would call tribal identity. If you are part of a tribe, you become suspicious of others outside of your tribe. Right? So the d disciples felt that their tribe therefore was more superior because of their proximity to Jesus. And Jesus would have none of that. In short, the tribal mindset believes that um, the world will find its peace if everyone thinks like my group or thinks just like me. Okay? Now, here's a, another biblical example. Paul. What was Paul doing? He preached the gospel of grace. Yet it turns out that uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that chapter, the, the book on uh, uh, divisions that we talked about earlier on, it turns out that he was hopping from one group to the next. First, we have the Jewish group who didn't care too much about the law. Then you have the Jewish group who cared about the law and then the Gentiles. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 onwards. I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. Whether I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. I lived like them, not just pretended, right? When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I lived too under the law. What would Lutherans say, right? 
when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Now, some would say that Paul is theologically inconsistent, right? How, could, how would Paul respond? Well, he would probably say, the gospel does not call me to be unshakably faithful to my denomination or my tribe. Instead, the gospel calls me to be unshakably faithful to Jesus and the gospel of grace, right? So, theologically, I just mentioned the biblical reason. Here's a theological one. There's a statement that is attributed to St. Augustine in the fourth century, but most say he probably didn't say it, but it's a good saying because all four branches of Christianity, including the Church of the East, recognize this and have been practicing this for centuries. It is this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. One more time, in essentials, the essentials are not very long, by the way. They are very few in the Bible, right? Unity. In non-essentials, you speak in tongues, you don't speak in tongues, fine. Let's have the liberty to worship together, right? And in all things, charity. So, let me move to the final point then. So, is Christian unity easy? No, it is not easy. So, let's not pretend that it is easy. But since when have Christians ever run away from anything challenging, right? Christian unity is the higher road, not the lower road. It is the noble road, not the easy road. It is the road produced by grace, not by religion. So what is the Bible's solution? In the fourth point this morning, it is only in the context of the cross and sacrifice that makes possible a holiness, a kind of holiness that has the power to bring real unity to real differences. So remember the natural tribalism that we have in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, right? I follow Paul, I follow uh, Cephas or Peter, another group says I follow Jesus. Paul solved the problem in the same book. 12 chapters later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, his famous exposition on love is actually in the context of church division and conflicts. So let me read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, in the context of conflict, right? Always trusts, in the conf uh, context of differences. Always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So it is in the context of church division where Paul talks about love. Right? So let me end with this thought. Almost all English translations of that section give us adjectives. Love is patient, love is kind, but there's a problem. In the Greek, they are not adjectives. They are verbs. Okay? You know what that means? You know what that means? More properly, you should read it. Jesus is patient. 
because the context is about Jesus' love to you. Jesus is loving to you, not easily angered by you. He does not keep a record of your wrongs. So, on and on it goes. In other words, it is costly to love others. It is costly to bring unity when there are genuine differences. It is not easy. It requires a sacrifice. So consider the practical sacrifice of Jesus towards you. He is patient with you. He is faithful to you. He does not delight in evil. He perseveres with you, right? If that is the case, you know what happens? The more you receive that, that will give you the emotional and spiritual bandwidth to offer that same love to real differences and the people who are not exactly the same as you out there with your patience, with your kindness, your lack of boasting, your honoring them and not elevating yourself because love never fails. Why? Because his love for you will never fail. Now for Rob to lay the better egg. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, wow. Some of uh, <laughs> we were talking about doing this service uh, when some of my younger parishioners heard that, that there were going to be two pastors preaching together on the same stage. Some of my younger parishioners asked me if Andre and I were going to engage in an epic rap battle. <laughs> and after seeing his energy level, I'm glad that that wasn't the case. Uh, I had dusted off a couple old battle rhymes. I was going to have Pascal beatbox for me, and, uh, but I'm glad that's not the case. We should do it. We should do it. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, speaking of epic rap battles in church history, uh, one of the most depressing things for me in seminary was what Andre was just talking about in, the, in his beginning about how um, learning about just the long, sad history about church splits in the Protestant Reformation. For real. I mean, there were a lot of us that really felt that we were like swimming upstream like salmon trying to find the true church. And when we got there and we actually saw the, the lineage, the, the, the lines from one church to the other, to the split, to the reunification, to the split, to the disintegration, to the, just the schematics of schism throughout the ages was wholly and utterly uh, depressing to see the disunity of that. And our, our Roman Catholic friends love to point that out to us. Our Roman Catholic friends point out that fact that the scorecard presently is 30,000 denominations and counting. And if that's true, how could you possibly say in any meaningful way, pro-Protestants, uh, that you are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How do, you, how do, we, even, how do we even begin to like answer that question? You're just like, you're almost like, you're just speechless, dumbstruck. Uh, my sister is Roman Catholic. My sister is a PhD from Catholic University. She's a catechist for the Roman Catholic Church in charge of adult conversions. Uh, and, but her secret dream is the reunification of the church, that we would all be unified. And so she, uh, whatever parish she's at, she goes to the priest and gets permission to have her brother, the Protestant minister, come up and teach a class to her Sunday school on different things. Once I got to come up and speak about the Lord's Supper, our view of the Lord's Supper, and 
Um, this year, I got to come up and teach through uh, their readings, like how we are, would see their readings that they were using in the Mass that week. And always part of that conversation is, is you know, how, how, do you guys, how do you guys deal with this unity passages? Jesus commanded us to be unified. And this last time I went up to her church to see that, I had an answer from the most unlikely of sources as I was preparing for the class. I found a Roman Catholic bishop who said this. <laughs> he said, looking at particularly this passage that I'm just going to read and, and some other ones, um, he said, look, he said, the answer to that is we are united. <laughs> we are one. We are family. In every way that really matters, there is one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism, one God and Father. You have been united through the Spirit. We are one. We are family. But the problem is, we just very seldom act like it. We are family. We just don't act like it. And I thought to myself, typical family. Closer the brothers, closer the brothers, the more bitter the fight. Uh, it's like in Guardians of the Galaxy version 2, where Nebula says to the Guardians, you guys aren't friends. All you do is yell at each other. And Drax the Destroyer says, yeah, that's right, we're family. <laughs> Typical family. And you know, where, you know where that comes to light? You know where you notice that? Where you notice the fact that we actually are united? Is at the airport when you're taking a flight somewhere and you sit next to a Christian from some other random denomination and all of a sudden you have that weird connection and then you start talking, you find out you're Christians and you have like a three-hour conversation on the way home about Jesus and how much you love Jesus. And that person, if you knew what church they belonged to, you might be wary about it. You wouldn't want your friends seeing you talking to them maybe because you didn't have to like explain yourself. Also, when I, in China, I have the privilege of teaching in China once a year and I'm working hand in hand, side by side with people uh, from very different denominational backgrounds. In some cases, people that on the home front are literally at war. Sometimes they're very, in one particular case, very, very close brothers, almost cousins, theological cousins, which are the bitterest fights, literally at war with one another back home. But over in, in China, when we are working together for the expansion of God's kingdom, and there's, it's such a spiritually vibrant place, you just don't even think about that stuff. And I'm working side by side with, 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 with men and women that I'd have to, like, give a disclaimer to my presbytery coming back home <clears throat> to make sure that I haven't, like, slipped up. And man, isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? So listen, the real question, the real question we need to ask is not how do we be unified? The real question we ask is how can we be united like family? That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is how can we act like the family that we already are through the blood of Christ? How do we act like the family <clears throat> that Jesus <clears throat> has already made us in the Spirit? And that's what Paul is really saying in this passage that I'm about to read. So let's listen now. This is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you hear Paul just say at the end, there is one Spirit, there is one Lord, there is one baptism, there's one God and Father in and through all of us, and we are family. And so the question is, how can we go about acting like it? And Paul tells us, gives us three things in this passage about how we go about doing it. He tells us the attitude we're to have, the extent with which we're to go, and the importance of it, why it's so important. So the first is the attitude, verse 2a, with all humility and gentleness. Uh, Humility here really means low-mindedness. It's the same uh, thing that we read in the gospel passages that said to consider others as more important than yourself. To consider others as more important than yourself. Not in the sense of being, we're not to like think that other people are like somehow are better than us or more loved by God, but in, but in our doing, to recognize that everybody's struggling just as hard as you are. A very wise man told me one day that if there's everyone you meet has a story that would break your heart if you knew it, and knowing that everybody else is struggling just as hard as you are, uh, true joy comes from refusing to, be, to demand on being the one who's served and instead serving those people around you that God puts in your life. And gentleness, gentleness means willing to waive your preferences for the common good. It's a quality of Jesus. And in uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says he's gentle and lowly of heart. It's a fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.23. It's a maturity of Jesus. And basically, here's the bottom line. This is what it means. It means... It means to be willing to give up some of the things that you love about church. To be willing to give up some of the things that you love about church. Not everything, for example, but like the big culprit for that, obviously, music styles. All sorts of warfare in the church has gone on because this music style or that music style to give up those preferences for, the, for unity and, and to love your brothers and sisters. Maybe it's, um, you know, other things like cultural styles. We don't really even recognize because we're in the bubble how much our culture of origin or our cultural preferences color how we worship together. And, and, and this calls for us to step outside of those bubbles and say, why are we doing this because this is essentially white culture or essentially black culture or Hispanic culture or Asian culture? And instead, how can we do things that invites and welcomes everybody in our worship service and makes everybody feel at home? There was a church that was founded when I was in seminary that really influenced me, and they came up with something they called the 75% rule, which meant it was a black pastor, a white pastor that came together to purposely found a church together And they came up with a 75% rule, which meant that if you were more than 75% comfortable with anything happening in the worship service, it was too much slanted towards you. And so that was like the goal. The gold standard was for everybody to be 75% cool with what was happening. Imagine how much we could get along if that was the standard rather than 110%. (laughs) I ain't lying. Can I get an amen? 
Uh, second thing, the extent which we're, uh, we're, we're called to go, verse 2b, uh, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible. It means to remain consistently, emotionally steady in the face of provocation and return love for anger, spite, resentment, whatever is being thrown at you, and to, and to, and to hold that position to stay in it for a long time, if need be. Um, one commentator on this, path, this part of the passage, he said this. This is perfect. He said, it's, this is the ability to make allowances for others' shortcomings and a tolerance of others' exasperating behavior. <laughs> Amen. It's essential for communal living, for being together. Just think about the craziest, most annoying church family member that you know who consistently makes your life difficult. Oh, that, that's, that's, that's it. That guy, that girl. We're called to go the distance loving those people because you know what? <laughs> More likely than not, they're going home at night doing the same thing for us, going, oh my gosh, how am I going to love Pastor Rob? <coughs> uh, yeah, you definitely know that's true. Amen. <laughs> now, that's, let me give a quick disclaimer. That is not to uh, put up with or allow divisiveness to happen in the church. There are people, who, unfortunately, whose real goal is to be antagonistic and to, just, and to divide churches asunder. And those people need to be dealt with with church discipline and love and gentleness and kindness. But for the most, for the rest of us, for most of us, most of our exasperating behavior, we're called to bear with it, to have patience, to return love. And the last one is, last thing is the importance of it, which is verse 3. Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's really hard to overemphasize uh, the urgency that this has, that Paul is speaking here. He would be saying something like, you must do this. You must fight for this. You must strive for this by any and every means necessary. It is so important it is so important for you to strive for unity. Uh, we have to fight for this and be constantly on guard for it because the disruption of unity is the main satanic attack to break the church. It's causing misunderstandings. It's causing arguments. It's causing divisions over things that should not divide us until we're so separated and sliced and diced and so preoccupied with fighting over the tiny minutiae of theology that the world then looks upon us and says, that's the love of God? No thanks. And that's really the point, right? Jesus says, if you want to be convicted, uh, Jesus says, he says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Jesus is basically saying that if we aren't able to display the love of Christ in our inner relationships with one another, we will lose the ability to display the love of God to the world 
and our we have no expect we should have no expectation of fruitful evangelism if we do that if we can't love one another that doesn't mean we have to agree with everybody doesn't mean we have to agree with everything uh, it doesn't mean that we have to allow heretics to just run rampant in the church but let's get real for the most part our core theology is very similar and we can at least love each other and acknowledge each other's Christianity, think the best of each other, uh, and care for one another. Seriously, people are, what people want to know, what people are looking at the church to know, uh, is a simple question. Does God love me? Is it possible even in their subconscious mind, even if people are denying God, even if people are agnostic about God, underneath all those layers of self-deception and fear uh, and sin is that baseline question, is it really even possible that God could love me? And when we have senior leaders in the church insulting other senior leaders in the church publicly, because they differ on secondary issues like the role of women in the church, it causes the world to look at us with dismay and say, nope, I guess God doesn't love me. God is harsh and judgmental. And so our evangelism depends on it. Our Christian life depends on it. Uh, so much depends on it. It's so important. Let me tell you one story that kind of wraps it all up together. Because it's, it's hard to even imagine all those things. And how do you even do that? And um, there's a, this is one of my favorite stories. True story as far as I know. Uh, as, as I said earlier, I have the opportunity once a year, I get to teach at a seminary in China. Uh, and in, in the course of my travels over there, uh, one of the missionaries... I, I teach at a, at a missionary seminary, meaning that the, the students in this seminary then go out uh, to peripheral areas of China, to uh, disputed territories, the most dangerous places uh, in, all of China, in all of China and the disputed territories around it that you can go uh, to minority populations. Um, and anyways, a story was told to me about a rural village, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the house churches in the, are out in the rural villages, not in the cities. There were two Christian brothers in this village, and one uh, Christian brother, they're both farmers. Uh, one, one of the Christian brothers would wake up every morning early, and he would go up, and he would pump water into his field. And you know that the fields were tiered. They're ones above another, one's above another on hillsides. And they have to pump water into the field every morning. And he would go and do that, and then his brother would come after him who had the field right below him and poke a hole in the dam, and all this water would drain out into his rice paddy, and then he wouldn't have to pump the water. And so the Christian brother went to his brother and was exasperated by his exasperating behavior, right? Tried everything, arguing with him. What are you doing? Uh, would you, you know, everything he could think of. And then meditating on Philippians 2, treat others better than yourself, he decided that instead what he was going to do was wake up earlier in the morning and he would go and first fill up his brother's rice paddy with water and then he would fill up his own. And he did that for months. And what do you think happened? Eventually he earned his brother. His brother repented. His brother repented and came and apologized to him. 
And not only that, the whole village saw it, and half the village converted to Christianity because they saw that act. What did that guy do? What did he do? He took upon himself the burden of that other man's sin. Whatever anger, whatever resentment, whatever hurt, uh, whatever sin against him that caused that man to do that kind of thing, and the suffering that was internal going on in him that would cause him to do that, his brother took on the burden of that for that man. He took on the burden of his sin. And it won his brother. And what did the village see? The village, they saw the gospel. They saw the gospel in action. What it really is. What Christ has done for us. That he has taken the burden of our sin upon himself. That level of love, what real love truly is, displayed for everybody to see. And man, when people see that, there's nothing else like that. There's nowhere else you can go to get that. There's nowhere else. There's nothing else the world has to offer that compares with the truth that yes, God loves us. Yes, God loves us so much, and the character of God is that he's taken the burden of our own sin upon himself. And that he's gone the distance with us. That in his patience, he has given us life and salvation. And it's that display, that display is what draws people to Jesus, man. So how do we even, how do we do that? How do you do, how do you do something like that? How do you even do something like that? Well, understanding that ourselves, really, the, probably the most remarkable thing about this whole passage is, is the little word, therefore, that it begins in verse, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, Paul, in his letters, he often has a turning point where the first half of his letter, he says everything that's true about us because of what Jesus has done, everything that God has given us, everything that we have in Christ, and then having gone on and on and on about that for three chapters, particularly in this book, Ephesians, this is when he turns the corner and says, therefore, because all that is true of you, now live like this. Do this. It's really clear in Romans chapter 12, Uh, all over the place. But this is the point where Paul turns the corner. And what does he say in the first three chapters of Ephesians? He says that God has, or or God has saved us, that God has, has, uh, has called us into his family, even from before the foundation of the world, he called us into his family. That all of the riches of heaven have been given to us, that we are already possessing all the riches of heaven. That God has broken down the hostility between men and made us all one new family in Jesus. That he's given us his spirit. He's given us faith. He's given us everything valuable, truly valuable in life. And because of that, we can know that we are absolutely safe. That we have been given everything that anyone could possibly ever want in Jesus. And that gives us the emotional space to then take that secure position, and from that secure position, 
love our exasperating brother <laughs> and love the people around us in the way the Bible talks about love. Caring for them, considering them more important, their needs more important than ourselves. And, and I don't know, man, how is that going to... Is that going to reunify the church? I don't know. I know it can reunify us, and I know that if our churches are internally unified, and then if we go the extra step and try to build relationships and unify with the churches that are around us, the other Orthodox churches around us, who knows what God might do with that? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for showing us what true love is. We thank you especially for teaching us what Jesus has done for us on the cross, Lord. We can't even imagine the kind of existence that Jesus left and gave up to be here with us. Talk about patience and long-suffering with exasperating brothers and sisters. Lord, we fully confess and acknowledge uh, that we exasperate you way, way more than anyone exasperates us. Amen. Amen.